This episode is brought to you by the Worth Your Time podcast, where your host, that's me, Erica Anderson, brings you unique and interesting conversations with Christian women working in the intersection of faith, politics, and culture. See you there. This is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revive Thoughts. Whatever changes, whatever trouble and confusion arises, if we seek to please men, we are abandoning the service of the Son of God. Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history and a sermon that they delivered. Just a reminder up front to subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Today's sermon is titled, Ravenous Wolves Who Wreck Havoc, and was preached by John Calvin in Geneva in 1557. Joel, every day there is a scandal in a church. A major church closes, the head pastor is ousted, something occurs that rocks the church due to a failure in leadership. And where there isn't a scandal, there are plenty of churches struggling with prosperity gospel preaching, bad theology, or a host of other issues. This isn't denominational, and this isn't one side is better than the other. This is a problem that has always been in the church, and as Christ said, would always be a fight we would have to deal with. This sermon by John Calvin helps address the problem. John Calvin, yeah, he was very controversial back then, and he's still controversial to this day. That's where we get the, the term Calvinism. It's, it's, it's his namesake that that idea uh, was born, this idea of one being predestined by God. And this seems to be his, his biggest legacy is, is this doctrine of, of Calvinism, but he obviously has a lot more that he contributed to society and to life. He was born in 1509 and died in 1564. So he only lived to be 54 years old, so not, not a terribly long life. Uh, he spent most of his life ministering in Geneva. John Calvin lived and preached during the era of the Reformation. Up until this point in history, the Catholic Church had dominated the religious landscape and pretty much controlled uh, you know, how Christians chose to worship God and live with God. However, during the Reformation, people started to break away from the Catholic Church. They started to read the Bible, preach the Bible, teach the Bible among themselves, and this led to this great, gigantic division. And John Calvin was at the forefront, one of the main leaders of that movement. Yeah, so the the Reformation, when you th- when I think about the Reformation, aside from Martin Luther, John Calvin, I think, is probably the biggest influencer during that movement. His teachings swept through the Netherlands, through Hungary, through England, and eventually hit the Puritans, who would eventually become pilgrims and head to America. Calvinism had a huge influence on, on American Christianity, and when the Great Awakening hit America, it went on to influence the world. And after studying this episode and doing research on who John Calvin was, I can understand how he was able to have such a profound impact on the world. Uh, Who I thought he was was not what I expected. You see, just like in today's church, people don't always live up to their calling. John Calvin saw a lot of that and went out of his way to call that out. He saw priests and ministers falling by the wayside to different sins, and he was determined not to do that. If anything, he went to the extreme on the other end, because few people did as much in their 54 years as he would end up doing. This guy would preach every day for one week, and then twice on Sunday. He wrote a book which helped the Reformation greatly, uh, the Institutes of the Christian Religion. And then he went on to form an academy which would send 2,000 missionaries to Catholic France alone to fight against uh, the the Catholic movement there. And he actually, according to the Christian History Institute, would be the first uh, Protestant to send missionaries to Latin America as well. And he believed, basically, he fought so hard. Um, and when people asked him to slow down, they said, you're getting sick, you can't keep going. And when they asked him to, he said, and what, have God come back and find me doing nothing? 
Yeah, like like I said, he he only lived to be fifty four, but he did so much in that time that he was here on Earth. Um, and sadly, like like we see in a recurring theme with with so many great men of God, and we see this time and time again on all of these revived thoughts episode where these these men of God have have pretty hard personal lives. Uh, he lost a child, uh, which was very difficult for him. He lost his wife after nine years. Of marriage, and he he faced a lot of opposition through his preaching and through his teaching, um, because again, this is this is the Reformation. He's he's actively going against the entire world's belief structure at the time. Uh, it's not not a popular thing to do, and and a lot of people were against him in that, and a lot of people hated him for that. There was a lot of slander towards him, and there was a point where he actually had to flee France because his life was in danger so much. And then there's the uh, incident that would become one of the most famous parts of his ministry, one of the most infamous things that happens to him, which is the burning of the heretic. And this is an issue that is so rife with controversy, so complicated, and we're, we're 500 years removed from it, that it's actually very difficult to get a clear, exact answer what happened in that time historically. And everyone's bringing their own bias to the table. Uh, some people hate John Calvin. They hate Calvinism. And this is their moment to crush him. They use this, well, he burned a heretic. And that's kind of the, the way to, in, in this argument. And then there are others who love him. They love Calvinism. They love everything about it. And so they want to turn a blind eye and they pretty much write it off as, oh, he, he was barely even there. Um, and we at Revive Thought suggest caution, care, uh, be careful attacking a man that God used and very much pursued God with, a, with, a, with a, his whole heart and all of his energy but also remember that men make mistakes and it's very you know he was he was known in his own day as being cold and exacting so this seems like something he could have been a part of yeah but we do want to talk about him we want to give you the facts this happened in 1553 uh and the the man that was executed was michael servetus and calvin either helped turned him in or was a key witness or both but either way he was pivotal to the the man being executed so Michael Servetus here, the man that was being executed, was preaching what what in modern days we would we would call universalism, the idea that all different religions, you know, Muslim, Jews, uh, they all believe in the same God and are all going to go to heaven. Um, and so he he preached this idea. He denies the the Trinity, and for that he was he was I mean that was that was a crime at that time, uh, and. The punishment for that crime was being executed by by being burned alive, which is a kind of a hard thing to look back on uh, and and think about, especially for us today in in modern day America, where we're recording this, where we you know we have separation of church and state, and we have the freedom of speech. It's it's kind of hard to look back on and and see a society that uh, this was not uncommon at that time in that era. This is definitely probably the darkest moment of his ministry. However, it, at the time, it was seen as the right thing to do. And again, like Joel was saying, today we can't fathom using the state to kill people that we don't agree with on a religious level. I mean, we all know prosperity gospels. We all know different groups of you know churches that don't align with us at all. And we never call the cops at them and say, hey, go arrest that preacher. Let's take him to trial and see him die. That's so foreign to us. But this is... 500 years ago. This is a completely different world. And it's important to remember, uh, there was a quote that said, if we got rid of all the, you know, the Christian strands that came from that era that killed people, uh, we'd be getting rid of Catholicism, 
Lutheranism. We'd be getting rid of uh, the Puritans. We'd be getting rid of Calvinists. I mean, we'd be getting rid of pretty much everybody in that era. That doesn't make what they did right. It does make it much more common. The Catholics were the ones who had pursued him out of France before he got to Geneva and in Calvin's hands. And it was the Catholics who ended up burning him in effigy seven months later anyway, just in the spirit of it. So again, not excusing what he did on any level, but acknowledging that that was a historical, it was sadly the way things were done and he participated in it on some level for sure. The sermon that he preaches, Ravenous Wolves Who Wreck Havoc, uh, he's talking about Basically, the tear and the wheat, uh, the, the idea that there are people who are sown into the church whose job it is is to break the church, whose job it is is to make the church weaker. He describes, you know, how this has always been going on, and he describes what characteristics specifically to look for. He talks about how these are men who are going to basically be looking for a paycheck, who won't stand very strong under worldly pressure. These are not men who are called by God, but who are basically inside the church to bring problems to the church. And I think that this message is just just as important now as it was then. We see this as a problem today in our church. We look around and see so many weak churches and weak Christians who are being fed by these kind of people. And knowing how to identify them, knowing what John Calvin said the problem was, will help us in dealing with them. Yeah, this is this is something that Calvin took very seriously. Um, there's this prayer that he says after preaching uh, a different sermon, but he says, We pray, Father and Savior, for your ordained pastors to your people who have the care of souls. May you lead and direct them by your Holy Spirit that they may be found faithful and true ministers of your glory, always striving to gather and bring home the lost and wayward sheep to the Lord Jesus Christ, our chief shepherd. Oh, that all churches may be delivered from the mouths of ravenous wolves and hirelings who follow their own purpose and ambitions and have no cares for the honor of your holy name and the welfare of your flock. As many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh, they beg you to be circumcised, only so they won't suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For neither they themselves who are circumcised keep the law, but desire to have you circumcised, that they may glory in your flesh. Galatians 6, 12-13 It is not without good cause that God strongly exhorts those whose duty it is to preach the word not to seek grace and favor in the eyes of men. He expects them to close their eyes to human opinions so that they are not turned to one side or to the other or prevented from properly fulfilling their office. Indeed, we know it to be impossible for us to fulfill our office properly unless we fix our eyes upon God and turn our eyes away from men. For we can easily become corrupted if we do otherwise, and it takes very little to turn us one way or another. Yet the most important loyalty required of those who have the responsibility of preaching the word of God is that they may be not tempted, either through ambition or avarice, to speak to please and satisfy men. They must not be afraid of perils or dangers, for experience shows that as soon as a man fears for his own skin or else has an eye to his own profit, he will change in a moment of time. 
It is true that those who seek to please men in this way are not demonstrating at that moment that they are evil or enemies of the truth, as indeed our Lord Jesus shows in the 10th chapter of John's Gospel where He makes a distinction between the hirelings and the wolves. Having spoken of good and faithful shepherds who seek the common well-being of the flock, He says that there are ravenous wolves or thieves who seek only to plunder everything, thereby wreaking havoc and confusion. These are people who fight openly with God and strive and struggle to overturn pure gospel doctrine. However, there are others who hunt with the hounds and pretend to be serving God. Yet neither type edify us, not even through their zeal, for they are devoid of integrity. While it costs them nothing, they simply make a fair show. So much so that we can often be deceived because we consider them to be ministers of Jesus Christ. They only seek the wages and are devoted to filling their own stomachs. This is why, when threatened, they immediately become fearful, and they change and alter their approach. Yesterday they seemed to uphold the Word of God, but today they are bending over backwards here, there, and everywhere. Why? Because they realize that this will make everyone happy and be more profitable to themselves. This is why Paul now warns the Galatians that those who troubled them and led them astray from the right path were given over to their own ambitions. This is why they cast doubt on certain doctrines. Up to this point, Paul has used reason in his debating to show that if we put our complete trust in Christ, the ceremonies of the law are now superfluous. Their application was temporary. They were designed to show us that if we are truly leaning upon the grace that was purchased for us by our Lord Jesus Christ, we must not seek justification in the sight of God through our merit or any other foolish notion. Paul has dealt with and settled this argument as far as it was necessary for him to do so. Now, in order that the simple-hearted will be moved even more deeply, he comes and addresses individuals, saying, "'Consider why it is that these people with whom I quarrel mix the ceremonial law with the Lord Jesus Christ. Are they motivated by zeal or a desire to serve God? Not at all. They have more of an eye to their danger of being persecuted.' Therefore, since fear makes them distort the Word of God, it is not necessary for you to make further inquiries or longer investigations into what kind of people they are and if you can trust them. For you will see how quickly they change and alter simply because they would avoid conflict. Thus, being traitors to God by their fearfulness, do they deserve to be believed or to have people respect what they say? This is Paul's aim. This teaches all ministers of the Word to have such constancy and faithfulness that they are unconcerned about whether the doctrines they preach are hated or whether they are pleasing to their listeners. They must follow their course and not strike sail at the slightest sign of wind, nor must they sway like reeds bending here and there. Whatever changes and revolutions occur, whatever trouble and confusion arises, let them continue to serve God." In brief, we must practically apply that which we learnt earlier, which is that if we seek to please men, we are abandoning the service of the Son of God. This is the first point. However, 
All believers can draw good, practical instruction from this passage. We are to be careful of those who seek their own profit and advantage, who desire the acclaim of others and want to be esteemed. For such people never have any stability. As I have already said, this may not be immediately apparent because some are dupes. They even think that it is thanks to them that the word of God does not appear hideous and is rather applauded. They may appear to be on fire and yet change their minds overnight. If there is some danger and they see that they are being prompted to testify to the Lord Jesus Christ, then they reveal their cowardice and finally turn in the opposite direction. Whatever happens, let us always be on our guard that we might only trust those whose lives are upright and who do not wander away when they see the world conspiring against them. Even when others are so possessed with rage that they seem to be about to devour them, and even when dangers are most apparent, they must continue steadfast and constant. In this way, we can distinguish them as servants of God. But those who alter and are counterfeit, who first say one thing, then another, to escape the hatred of men and avoid suffering persecution, we must guard against so that we are not deceived or misled, for they are like deadly plagues. We cannot have any security or support unless we display the good judgment and carefulness that Paul urges us to have in this passage. Now this message is necessary today. For why is it that so many hypocrites murmur boldly against the word of God and uphold such gross abuses as we see in the papacy, the superstitions, the idolatries, the errors? It is because they know that if they do not keep the pot boiling and hold on to certain things, they will simply starve. They also consider the danger of persecution if they uphold such doctrine. They see it condemned by princes and powerful people in the world. They therefore decide to keep themselves hidden away in the shade. This, I tell you, is why an infinite number of people disguise the truth of God and falsify it. Instead, they uphold many corrupt practices. The reason is that they do not wish to endure for the sake of Jesus Christ. It is true that they may not be papists in the least degree, nor blaspheme openly against the Word of God, yet they desire to create another path, yes, made according to their own liking. For they accuse us of being too extreme and too rigorous because we condemn those who attend Mass and those who convince themselves that they do not worship idols. Come now, they say, provided that they do not have these things in their hearts, do we need to oppress them to the point of creating offense and cause people to risk death over it? What reason can there be for this? Or life is precious to God, and even if we do not commit evil, He will still pity us in our frailty. Those who speak in this way show for certain that they are motivated by some other reason. That is, they have noticed that the world is inflamed against us and that it seems we daily run the risk of sinking and perishing. Because we see weak preachers running away from persecution, not wishing to suffer any conflict for the Lord Jesus Christ, bending and compromising only in order to enjoy peace in this world, we must pay all the more attention to Paul's warning here and discern who are the true servants of Jesus Christ. They are people who have no thought for their own profit, who do not seek the applause of men, nor the best fare, nor the honors of this world. They are content just simply to do their duty, 
without concerning themselves about the kind of wind that is blowing, be it a storm or a whirlwind, or be it calm. If we follow that which is taught, it is certain that our faith will not waver. There are many today who do not know what they should do, and yet they say, I fear conflict and differences of opinion and the strife that has to be faced in this world. Some conclude that they must devote themselves fully to the Lord Jesus Christ, but there are others who follow a more gentle route and who only desire a half-hearted transformation. Who should you believe? Simply open your eyes, for those who use such excuses are not seeking to follow the truth. They are quite happy to veil their sin and to seek the flattery of others. But what do they gain? Satan is leading them to death, and they desire to follow him. Because they fear what will happen to them in this life, they love the shadows and devote themselves to pleasure and comfort. They must therefore receive the payment that they deserve. Those who deliberately become brutish in this way have been taken over by Satan, Paul declares, and now remain perplexed, not knowing what to do. They do not stop to think that those who simply preach the truth of the gospel are not to be pliable people, but to pursue their course without worrying about whether or not their doctrine is pleasing to everyone else. Since God has commanded them to speak, they do so. On the other hand, cowardly people who say that we have to tread carefully and not swing beyond our hinges, who claim that it were better to be counterfeits and double-minded, such people cannot be driven by zeal or affection for serving God. They do not consider either the edification or well-being of the church. In short, their only concern is that they might escape persecution and retain their comforts. They do not want anyone to attack them. Now this is indeed worthy of note, for those today who remain in their nests and offend God have no excuse. Why? Because Paul gives us a sure mark which distinguishes the true servants of God from the hired hands from whom we are to flee. That is to say, those who seek only to feed their stomachs and enjoy the comforts of this world. At this point, he adds, unless they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. By this word, cross, there is no doubt that Paul includes all doctrine, and he is saying that it is very difficult to preach in all simplicity that which is contained in the Word of God without encountering much conflict. For although God protects us, yet it is still true to say that the world has never obediently accepted the gospel, and there have always been grumblers and obstacles. We still see them today, and will continue to do so, for our Lord wants to test the faithfulness of His own, and ultimately demonstrate the invincible power of His Word, which overcomes all the obstacles brought up by Satan. As it says in Jeremiah, And they shall fight against you, but they will not prevail against you. God is glorified when the world, together with Satan, makes its strongest efforts and yet cannot prevent the truth from running its course. For this reason, Paul says that these people who disguise and falsify the Word of God are running away from the cross. Even though the fires are not lit and the enemies are not armed to execute the cruel persecution that they would like to mete out, or rather, even though our Lord is restraining those who are furious with His Word and who wish to throw off His yoke, yet we must suffer the revilings of many people. We will be defamed. There will be murmurings and slanders against us. 
but let us breathe it all in and then harden ourselves against it, as it were. We see that wherever the gospel is preached, a thousand accusations come against those who seek to carry out their duty faithfully. All those who wish to pursue their course must prepare themselves to bear many trials. These would lead them to compromise were they not determined to obey God despite everyone else. We must remember that this extends to the whole body of the church in general. When we hear the message of peace that is brought to us in the name of God, let us not expect to be at rest in this world, but always to have to deal with many quarrels and difficulties. If anyone is not prepared for this, he must leave the Lord Jesus Christ, for such a person can never be one of his disciples. As he declares with his own mouth, the one who does not bend his shoulders to carry his burden and his cross is not worthy to be his, and all such are excluded. Let us learn that, being called to the Lord Jesus Christ, we must share in his cross as much as pleases him, as it is written that if we suffer with him, we will also be glorified and partake of the power which was revealed at his resurrection. We must still have fulfilled in us as members of his body the sufferings that he first endured. It is true that he alone suffered that what was necessary for our salvation, but we need to be conformed to his image, as it says in the eighth chapter to the Romans. Even if God spares us from being amongst tyrants who could torture us or evil men who could attack us, and he ensures that they only bark at us, yes, even if he leaves us in peace, it is because he pities our frailty and spares us because of our weakness. Let us not flatter ourselves in this meanwhile, but let us pray to God that through His Holy Spirit He would strengthen us. Then, when He calls us to line up ready for combat, we will not act like raw recruits, but will have premeditated long since the fact that we must share in the sufferings of Jesus Christ in order to reach the glory of His resurrection. With regard to this expression, keep the law, it is sometimes taken to mean accomplishing and observing all that it contains. No one can keep the law in the sense that no one can perfectly accomplish all that is commanded therein. There is good reason for it to be referred to as an intolerable burden. Also, we know how weak we are, and the law reveals God's angelic standard of righteousness. How, then, is it possible to reach it? No one keeps the law if we take this to mean perfect obedience which cannot be criticized. Believers, being governed and led by the Spirit of God, keep the law. That is to say, they walk according to the rule that is given in the law. Not that they run as fast as they should or that they reach their goals immediately, yet they aim at these things, God supporting them and not imputing their sins to them. This is how believers are to keep the law. However, here he is referring to the ceremonial law. Although on previous occasions, Paul has shown us that all the commandments of God can only bring about our condemnation if we do not have resort to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet here he is speaking about the ceremonies and shadows. Let us now consider his meaning here. He says that those who are circumcised do not keep the law. He means that while they have the sign as a standard to make others think that they are Jews in order to avoid hatred and persecution, they do not observe the whole law, for they still allow themselves freedom to despise all that should accompany circumcision. The person who is circumcised should also sacrifice and abstain from eating meat that is forbidden in the law, 
keep the festivals that are appointed there, observe the various washings and cleansings, and so on. But these people pay no attention to this. When they are alone and secret and not being watched, none of this matters to them, and they have no scruples about showing contempt for the whole ceremonial law. Therefore, we can see that they were not circumcised out of zeal, but because they cared about what others think of them. Now, we must be clear that Paul is speaking here about those who insisted on the circumcision of others as a compulsory act. For on certain occasions, Paul had to be careful to conform to the ways of the Jews and to forfeit the liberty that he otherwise rightfully enjoyed, so as not to give offense, such as in Acts 16.3. But he always maintained that he was not under any obligation to do so. So, since Paul submitted of his own free will, he did not wish to place others in servitude, as he protests when he says that he would not wish to bind anyone. It is true that this is said in another context, in relation to marriage, but he is still setting out in general terms that he does not wish to cast a snare for the souls that were bought by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now he says here, those who constrain you to be circumcised, in other words, who impose the law upon you and who tell you that you must keep this ceremony or else commit a mortal sin, needlessly subjugate you. To sum up, those who wanted to force Christians to submit to observing the ceremonies and shadows of the law of Moses are here accused of double-mindedness. They did not really do these things because God required them, but because they wanted to please others and escape persecution. Today, we need the same warning that the Galatians had to have in those days. If we consider the state and condition of our own age, we will easily recognize that this teaching is necessary and that the Spirit of God wants to reveal that which He knew would be important for us. How many people do we find today who strongly and firmly uphold the ceremonies of the law and see nothing wrong with this? Worse than this, they uphold follies and traditions which have been invented by men and even abuses, errors, and deceits, which are more terrible and more foolish than anything else. All of these are insisted upon with extreme rigidity by those who want us to obey them. When we set before these hypocrites the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and tell them that the light of the gospel is obscured by all such things, or that we are becoming like the Jews, for Truly, the papists have borrowed so many things from the law that it is hard to distinguish between the Jews and those who call themselves Christians. When we tell them these things, they still maintain that they must keep them to the very end because they have been observed since the beginning of time. If we go further and tell them that these are such follies and that even pagans have never stooped to observe such awful or ridiculous superstitions as they do today, they will reply, Oh, but we must keep the traditions of our holy church. They will rant and rave on this matter. But what are these hypocrites doing now who have incited the rage of both princes and judges against those who faithfully preach the word of God? Well, as soon as they are amongst their own, they simply mock at these traditions. But when they are engaged in a debate about them, they will say the very opposite to all that they preach and declare in the flesh. By this we can see that they have no zeal for God and no integrity, but they seek to eat their fill and to feast luxuriously and then to be at peace and to have all their comforts and pleasures. 
We see, therefore, that there are so many people without a single ounce of the fear of God or reverence for His Word, who nevertheless pretend to be great zealots. They allure poor souls, only to strangle them in a manner of speaking. Therefore, we must pay all the more attention to what Paul declares here. In other words, when we understand that these people who shout and rage do not practice what they preach, let us be on our guard to find out what motivates those we permit to teach us. It is true that if a man does the reverse of what he says, we must not, as a consequence, allow the Word of God to lose its authority over us. It is not fair to dethrone God from His sovereign position of authority for the sake of one wicked man. If a person leads a double life, or commits a cowardly act, and yet has preached faithfully, we must not allow this to detract from the heavenly doctrine itself. We must not permit the truth of God to diminish in our eyes because a man, fickle by nature, alters and wavers, or if he is a hypocrite and his life does not match that which his mouth proclaims. I tell you right now that whenever we see those who seem champions of the truth giving themselves permission to do anything and license to do the opposite of all that they preach, we must consider the situation and, using our good judgment, refuse to be deceived by false appearances or led by the nose. Let us search out their doctrine and make a good, thorough examination of it. Finally, Paul adds that these people want to glory in the flesh of simple-minded folk. This definitely relates to the sign of circumcision. It is as if he is saying, they want to leave their mark upon you in order to prove that they have won you over. How detestable this makes them, that they would abuse the sign that God gave to ratify the adoption of Abraham and his descendants and corrupt its true and legitimate use. For God had commanded the Jews to be circumcised. Why? So that they would understand that the whole human race was cursed, there being nothing but pollution within us, and that therefore we must renounce all that pertains to our nature or else forever remain polluted and condemned before God. This is what the Jews had to learn through circumcision. This circumcision was designated to humble the Jews and cause them to be dissatisfied with themselves and ashamed when they saw that their nature was cursed. And yet, it was also a testimony to the grace of God, enabling them to call upon Him as their Father, knowing that through the seed promised to Abraham, they would receive salvation. This, I say, is the true and legitimate use of circumcision. But what did these people that Paul speaks against do? They knew that circumcision no longer applied, and that since the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, baptism was sufficient. But because the Jews called all who were not circumcised apostates, these scoundrels retained the sign without the reality. We can see, therefore, that they were true forgers, turning this doctrine into something other than God intended when He instituted this spiritual sacrament, simply because they sought to satisfy the world. The same is true today. Those who seek to overturn God's truth are much worse than Paul's adversaries, for there was some semblance of honesty in their pretext for maintaining circumcision in the figures of the law and that these had been instituted and established by God. But what about these hypocrites who loudly proclaim that we must keep the ancient rites without the least alteration? Upon what do they base their views? They cannot claim that God is the author of all things, 
Men have invented them according to their own fantasies, or rather, Satan has whispered these things in their ears. In short, there is a confused labyrinth of teachings which they refer to as the service of God. These are dreams put forward by men, and the devil is still their chief source of inspiration. Yet such men insist that we can take nothing away. What is their motive? They say that these are the means whereby we can obtain God's grace, and that they also inspire men to a greater level of devotion. Then again, they refer to all the foolish inventions that their own heads have devised as sacraments, saying, you must observe this because it is a sacrament. When all is said and done, it is obvious that, above all else, they want to please men and preserve themselves. They are forced, in spite of themselves, to confess that all of this is neither here nor there as far as God is concerned, and their service does not please Him in the least. He would disown it all. For he seeks to be served by obedience. However, we cause terrible confusion when we suggest removing these things and when we speak clearly about such matters. This, I say, is the way they disguise, corrupt, and falsify religion and make it a confused mixture of just about everything. They may just say that we can remove the worst and most grievous errors while leaving the ceremonies which are still admissible. All those, I say, who speak in this way only seek a fair wind and a good profit in this world. This being the case, let us be warned by the Spirit of God to flee such plagues. Although we cannot enjoy victory in this world, and although we are criticized and shamefully accused, may we keep ourselves upright for the sake of the truth of God. May it be enough for us to enjoy the approval of our heavenly judge, even if the whole world regards us as an abomination. However, much of this treatment we see, let us be patient, waiting for the day when the Lord Jesus reveals Himself as our certainty and gives such victory to His truth that all His enemies stand in shame and silence before Him. Now let us all fall down before the majesty of our great God, acknowledging our sins and praying that He would so touch us by His Holy Spirit with a true spirit of repentance, that we might tremble, despairing of ourselves, being emptied and stripped of all presumption. Furthermore, may it please Him to increase in us the graces of His Holy Spirit, so that we are no longer given over to our flesh and to this world and hindered and held back by them. May we instead aim to serve Him and make every effort to ensure that His name is glorified in us more and more, and that we bear visible evidence of our adoption, that we may be strengthened within ourselves. This way, others will have occasion to glorify the name of our great God when He has worked in us. May He show this grace not only to us, but also to all peoples and nations on the earth. Amen. Out of all the sermons that, that we've done in season one of Revive Thought so far, I, I, I really think this is one of the most applicable ones for our modern day and age here. Uh, I think it's it's so applicable. And he's talking about, I love how he specifically calls out uh, pastors for like softening what what God is calling them to preach out of fear of, of what other people might do in retaliation, what people might think or how they might uh, respond to him. 
Uh, and I, I think that is, is very applicable in today's day and age. The modern church, especially here in America, is in a lot of ways affected by compromise. You know, you, you see this kind of uh, entertainment movement in, in a lot of modern American churches where uh, they are in some ways intentionally avoiding more controversial biblical topics. And uh, I, I feel like if John Calvin was alive today and preaching to us, he'd, he'd definitely be calling out a lot of a lot of modern day American churches. Yeah, I completely agree with you, Joel. And I also think you look at what he said about the minister, the kind of person that is the ravening wolf. I, I really think it's that person who doesn't stand firm in the word. You know, he, he says, oh, you know, we're going to preach the word. This is the kind of place we're going to be. But when you are under pressure, when people start to question you, when the world says that's wrong, he goes along with them and says, yeah, you know what? Yeah, maybe the Bible's wrong about that. Maybe the Bible's old, maybe whatever. We're going to move with the world and be there with them. And we're going to kind of put the word of God behind us. I think he's absolutely right. That's exactly the kind of person that is not willing to not willing to believe in God and stand for God when it's tough is exactly the kind of person that's a wolf put in there to make the church weaker. And like, you know, like you were saying, I think this is something that church really needs to get a hold of. Not, there are a lot of preachers and, you know, I don't know who they are and what their hearts are, but it seems like there are a lot of preachers out there who are interested in making a name for themselves, making some money, feeling some, you know, power over a congregation, feeling good about themselves, and they're not worried about whether the word of God is being preached and whether their congregation is truly growing. And you compare that to John Calvin, who went, there, who went through so much persecution, slander, you know, had his name dragged through the mud, was forced out of a city, went through all this hardship, but didn't give up and just kept staying firm to the word. And you look at that and you can tell which one a real preacher of God is. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revived Thoughts. Today's sermon was narrated by Jeremy Howard. If you enjoyed this episode on John Calvin, please visit our website at revivedthoughts.com. There you can find a transcript of this episode and all of our episodes here at Revived Thoughts. If you like this episode, make sure to subscribe. We also ask that you share it with others, tell others about it in person, or put it out on social media for them to see so that they can also enjoy this episode and hopefully grow as well. And while you're on social media, make sure to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, check us out on Instagram, and you know keep up with us. We put out a lot more content than just sermons, and we want you to be able to enjoy all of that. If you would like to be on the Revive Thoughts show and preach a sermon, we would love to hear from you. Uh, just contact us send us an email at revivethoughts at gmail.com and when we hear from you we will tell you how that process is set up also revivethoughts at gmail.com if you have feedback ideas something you would like to see change we would love to hear from you either way this is troy and joel and this is revive thoughts This episode is brought to you by the Worth Your Time podcast, where you'll hear from Christian female entrepreneurs, politicians, ministry leaders, authors, athletes, CEOs, and more. I'm Erica Anderson, mom of two, writer, and host and creator of Worth Your Time. I created this podcast because I wanted to hear from more women like me who were interested in the intersection of faith, politics, and culture. How do we navigate the choppy waters of partisan politics? How do we engage with culture honorably as Christian professionals? I know you don't have a lot of time, and that's why I make every second worth it on this show. You'll hear from women that aren't on every other Christian podcast, and we get really real because I don't know how to function any other way. Episodes drop every other Tuesday. Hope to see you there.